Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Murens. Today's episode is a bit different from other episodes in that it doesn't involve Canadian immigration law per se, although it does involve planes. The Secure Air Travel Act, Canada's Secure Air Travel Act, provides the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness with the authority to establish a list of individuals that the minister has reasonable grounds to suspect could be a threat to aviation or national security, or that they intend to travel by air for the purpose of terrorism. It also authorizes the minister to collect information for the purpose of identifying such listed individuals who are on board or expected to be on board aircraft and to deny transportation or require additional screening of a passenger who is a listed person. So in other words, the Secure Air Travel Act creates Canada's no-fly list, although there are some semantics involved in whether calling it a no-fly list is appropriate. On August 10, 2022, in a decision called Brarby Canada, Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, the Federal Court of Canada released its decisions in the first appeals filed under the SATA, Today we are joined by the two lawyers who represented the individuals in that decision who were on the SATA list. The first lawyer, Sadaf Kafshi, works for Edelman & Co. in Vancouver. She advises clients on complex issues concerning U.S. and Canadian immigration law, Canadian criminal law, and during the COVID-19 pandemic actually developed a successful practice representing individuals accused of Quarantine Act violations, uh, stuff like you know, showing up at Canada without a vaccine test or a mask or having been uh, having a COVID test or quarantining. The second lawyer, Eric Persky, is associate counsel at Fowler & Block, a criminal defense law firm in Vancouver. He has appeared at the Supreme Court of Canada seven times. He's also a past guest on this podcast, having appeared on episode nine to discuss the constitutionality of retrospective and retroactive laws. I've been told that reading emails of our guests at the start of the podcast is annoying, so instead I'm going to provide a link to their contact information in the show notes. On today's episode, we discuss how Canada's Secure Air Travel Act works, who reviews the names on the Secure Air Travel Act to make sure that all the names that are on there should be there, what the threshold is to be added to the list, what the threshold is for possibly traveling to commit a crime is, whether the government has to publish how many people are on Canada's no-fly list, how people learn that they are on the no-fly list, what they can do once they've learned that they're on the no-fly list, and at the end discuss whether someone could be put on Canada's no-fly list for something like refusing to wear a mask on a plane. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. So this was the first, uh, at least the, according to the judge, the first reported decision involving what I'll refer to as just the no-fly list. And it's an act that, you know, given that it's the first reported decision, I assume most people are not very familiar with Canada's no-fly list. So maybe Eric or Sadaf, do you want to just start with kind of a brief overview of how the Secure Air Travel Act works and what its purpose is? 
Steph, why don't you go ahead? Uh, sure. Um, so this, this, this Secure Air Travel Act, which is also called the SATA, came out of the Anti-Terrorism Act um, in 2015. Um, and the SATA enables the minister to create a list of persons whom they have reasonable grounds to suspect will either engage in an act that would threaten transportation security and or travel for the purposes of committing a terrorism offense. The act allows for persons inside or outside Canada to be listed and uh, for suspected acts that could be inside or outside of Canada. The minister, this was a new amendment, but the minister is required to review the list every 90 days to determine whether or not um, listed persons um, should remain on the list. And the contents of the list are basically classified unless the person is denied boarding. Okay, so there's a lot in there um, yeah. to start unpacking a little bit. Let's start with the minister. Like when you say the minister names people or the minister has to review the list every nine days, like who is the minister? Is that Marco Mendicino, the public safety minister directly? Is it delegated? It's the minister's delegate under a program, which, sorry, the list has to be reviewed every 90 days, not nine. Oh. Um, but uh, the it's the Minister of Public Safety's delegate um, through a, an organization called, whose name I now don't have in front of me. I think it's PPAG, but it's like, um, it's, it's an, it's a delegation of Transport Canada, CSIS. I can get you the, the full list. Um, but the, the program itself is basically run by this delegation. And the minister's delegate um, is the person who makes the decision. And the purpose, there's two things or two possibilities that can cause someone to be put on this list. The first is if they're going to commit a crime while they're in the air and the second is uh if they're traveling for the purpose of committing a crime so let's focus on the first one committing a crime in the air is there a threshold that has to be met like is this you know blowing up or hijacking the plane or can it be like back in the era of mask mandates not wearing a mask like what is there a threshold of what crime has to be met uh the act just says threatening or threaten transportation security. And the, the test is reasonable grounds to believe that it, that, that person will threaten transportation uh, security. Just, to, just uh, Steve, just so the, the Secure Air Travel Act um, has added, to, added one criteria to be added on a no-fly list. That criteria, the first branch, so that you're an immediate threat to transportation security, was always in uh, pre was always part of the law. It was in the Aeronautics Act. So there's always been a no-fly list in Canada. The only the only difference with the SATA is that it adds the second ground, which is travel for the purpose of committing a terrorist offense. So um, threats to transportation security, um, I mean, could be viewed. As, I mean could be viewed as wearing a mask, but generally speaking, it's the traditional 9-11 no-fly list, right? So are you going to blow up the plane? Um, uh, are there any other risks to transportation security? And so that's always been a part of the law. Um, the real issue with SATA and the real issue uh, in, 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 in our case 
concerned whether or not um, travel for the purpose of committing a terrorist offense. And the classic example given to that is sort of ISIS uh, type fighters going to Syria and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that that's always been that's sort of the focus of this this particular regime. So. But on that, just even on like the, the first point, so, it, and, and actually with both branches, is there any indication, like, do they have to publish how many people are on the list or why they've been no. listed? Obviously, no, they don't, don't publish the no, it's, all, it's obviously not, right? Because it's all protected by security issues. So it's heavily uh, protected in terms of security. I mean, obviously, the person knows, the person who's concerned know and the aircraft carriers know. Um, the funny thing about the sort of funny, but the, the the weird thing about the SATA is it depends a lot on commercial air carriers to carry out the minister's direction. So in reality, the SATA is no more than a ministerial direction to commercial air carriers who have their own regulations. Um, to not accept this guy for boarding, right? So it's a ministerial direction, not just to board, right? That's one of the things that the minister can direct the air carrier not to do to even take the guy in. But the minister is given uh, discretion to uh, give any direction. So it can, even under the act, can give uh, requirements, say you can fly, but can give uh, directions concerning enhanced security screening for an individual. So it's not necessarily a no fly list. It's a ministerial direction to, F to air carriers, commercial air carriers to take any specified action in respect of a named person. But just so going to like, so do the people know that they're on the list? Cause maybe I misread the case, but I thought that one of the issues was that you don't actually learn until you're denied boarding. Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you would know if it was on, if it's on exigent circumstances, if it's a, the minister can list on through the normal route, through a normal route or an ex, on, on exigent circumstances. So if it was an ex, if it's an exigent circumstances case, likely the person, cause it's quick, right? Exigent, exigent. They, you know, they got to go right away. Right. So, um, the guy shows up at the, at the thing and says, you can't board. Right. So that's, but usually the guy, the person concerned is given notice and, he has participatory rights in terms of he's given a notice that he cannot uh, fly and he has a right to make representations uh, to the, um, I don't know the exact name, it's the PPIO, who uh, it's a passport, the passenger, I don't know, how the, I, I can find it, but it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a, a subgroup of the minister's delegate that he arranged that they arrange for you to make submissions to them. They give you disclosure and all the rest of it, right. To the extent they can. Right. So the, the person concerned will know to say that's wrong, you know, has a, has, has participatory rights to be given disclosure. I mean, to the extent that the act permits, but when would they get like the, the, is it just, they get a letter in the mail or is it when they try to book a flight? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they, in the, in this case, in exigent circumstances, likely they'll find out when they show up at the airport. Right. And yeah. so, you know, we'd be given this direction that you can not board the plane, but I mean, I mean, if it's not an exigent circumstances listing, they would just, be advised they have to be advised somewhere whether it's in the mail or whatever the guy they they, they come by and drop off a correspondence but the person will know 
because they have participatory rights and have to be given notice of that, right? Yeah, but like in these two cases, they learned at the airport. Learned at the airport because it was an exigent circumstances listing, right? Yeah. So, um, let, I think we should just back up for a second because I think Section Nine One A of the SATA says that um, the minister has the power to direct an air carrier to deny transportation to a person or subject them to additional screening. If the person is denied boarding under Nine One A, then uh, they are provided with written notice. But if they're subjected to enhanced screening under 9.1b, then they're not going to be given notice. So really the only time you find out that you're on the list is if you're denied boarding. And is the denial of boarding, so like when I looked at section 8.1, it says the minister may establish a list which is placed surname, first name, date of birth, gender. I mean, the question that obviously then, I mean, we can probably anticipate it, is how, like, what if you have two people with the same name and date of birth? Like, does it, is it tied to passport or, I mean, actually, if you're on this list, does it automatically lead to passport revocation? No, it's a separate regime, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the kind of an interesting issue, right? Like, in reality, the, the, the SATA doesn't prevent you from traveling by ship to another country, strictly speaking, right? It doesn't prevent you from traveling across Canada by rail or car. Um, doesn't really prevent you from going to the, I mean, in reality, I think it'd be very difficult to cross the border once you have other names on the no-fly list. But SATA is quite limited because it just allows you not to get on a plane. It doesn't deal with situations like a passport um, revocation, which is a separate regime and which they have used, which they also use to deny ISIS fighters, right? Who want to go and, you know, do, you know, uh, who want to go across the world and, you know, engage in terrorism, right? So those people will face a passport revocation for the same types of considerations. And the SATA, I understand, is it's blind as to citizenship too. So we're not even clear what passport we're talking about and whether or not Canada right. would have any jurisdiction to confiscate that passport because it- Right, I'm just talking about it for a citizen though, right? Um, so for, for these, for, you know, they haven't, you know, they haven't revoked their passports, but what SATA is really designed to do is sort of like an extra special thing to say, well, I guess for people that can't revoke their passports, but if you're putting a, a, a citizen on the no-fly list, it's tantamount to canceling their passport, really, right? Um, I mean, like, you know, so, I, so you said, oh, you could always try to cross a land border, but I don't practically know how you do that, right? Because I think once you'd go through the, once you're on the no-fly list, you'd be red flagged in quite a few places, right? It's because they, they're the minister's allowed to share the list with other countries. And so by virtue of our geographic location, the Americans will immediately know. And right. so the, the person who's in Canada will effectively be landlocked unless they cross right. over. The, yeah, but we, yeah, the problem is all that stuff. I mean, that's a, I, I fully accept that's true. But like, we don't know. You're never told that, right? Yeah. You know, that's all pretty murky stuff. Like, 
there, there's a, there's a provision in the act that says that they got to share this stuff, which is I think common with all security information sharing, right? They may or may not. Right. I mean, I just assume they will, but I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know what process they do that. And they certainly don't tell you what they're doing. Right. And being placed on the list, there's a 90 day review. The minister has to review it 90 days, but the person doesn't have the right to participate. Yeah, you can. Oh, you, you can. can. You can. Every 90 days, you have a right to make submissions. But do you get, um, but that's only if you've been notified that you're on the list. Yes. No. And so, like in these cases, will the like so every 90 days, do that would would you get a letter that says, we're going to review this again. Is there anything you want to? Yeah, I don't say? know. I, I don't. I don't know really, Steve, because I've only I've only know what's happened in you know my case, right? So I don't know what what generally happens, but you know, there you're you have a right to make submissions every 90 days, um, you know, without getting in the circumstances of bar case. I mean, I, I don't know practically how it works. I mean, but the, they have to review the whatever the PPAG needs to review the listing every 90 days based on a recommendation. And, you know, you have a right to make submissions every 90 days, right? Yeah. But because of the nature of the allegation, you don't have the right to review the evidence against you in full. By in full, you mean everything, like everything that the PPAG has considered? Yeah. Yeah. The, for security reasons, you'll never get at it. You never get all the information. Well, and, and section 16 of the SATA imposes no explicit obligation on the minister to disclose any information to a listed person in order for them to make written representations. So it's actually discretionary for the minister to decide whether or not they're going to. Well, you have to be reasonably informed, right? That's the, that's the standard. It says you've got to be reasonably informed, but there's a, a like a list of reasons for non-disclosure, right? Well, it section, like at, at the administrative recourse section, so this is just purely before an appeal is started, the minister doesn't have any requirement under section 15 of the SATA to provide any information to the listed person. So the person ha can, has the right to make representations, but it doesn't mean that they are gonna be provided with any information to make representations. Yeah, and that sounds like it's, uh, that is the content of the decision that that we have is really talking about the degree to which the confident, the, the, the classification of that information is justified. Um, perhaps maybe um, we can sort of like look to the specific circumstances of the case a little bit and discuss um, how it arose and how, um, you know, how, um, how, you know, how the issues kind of came before the court in the first place. Sure, I, I can I can address it um, with regard to, to my client. Um, my client was denied boarding from a domestic flight from Vancouver to Toronto in 2018. And that's when he received notice that he was placed on the no-fly list. And so he was given this general letter that said, you're on the list and you can make representations to the minister. Um, and so he did, he provided a, a very simple response saying, I, I like to make representations. And in this case, the minister exercised his discretion to release um, what we call the unclassified summary. Um, and that unclassified summary uh, was 
you know, a list of, of information that the minister was going to consider. And in that letter, it said that the minister was also going to consider confidential information that was never going to be disclosed to the client. Um, and to give you a flavor of the kind of information that was placed into the unclassified summary, um, one of them included a retweet that my client had made about concerns about uh, someone who had been detained uh, in India. Um, and the tweet basically said that that person uh, should be given a fair trial. The other piece of information that was before the minister was that my client had um, been retained by packing company to act as an investigator during the Air India trial, and that there was an acquittal in that case. So that was the kind of evidence that we were supposed to respond to. Right. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and then in terms of the, like, the, the information that you had about the fact that there was further information that was classified, that's simply what you got, that there's further unclassified, that there's further classified information that was not enumerated in any way that you had no way of knowing even the, the sources, the, um, the nature of that information or anything like that. That's right. The, the unclassified summary did have footnotes and the sources of those, of that information was newspaper articles. So aside from newspaper articles, we didn't have any other information about the source of information that was coming or that the minister was going to be considering. Right. Okay. Um, that does actually just put it into perspective for me in terms of like, we sort of dove directly into the legislation, but in terms of like um, what we understand as um, the, the right to understand the case to be met, um, it does put it into a perspective from that standpoint. And I understand what you're saying, Eric, about participatory rights, but I think that this is pretty stark contrast to what we're normally accustomed to in terms of being able to defend oneself against a pretty serious allegation. Right, and my only point is that you have a right, the act gives you a right to participate in the decision, right? And so for, in order for the participatory rights, which parliament has said uh, is a requirement under SADA, um, you know, obviously you need to be given enough information to participate. Um, so it, it's not a decision that's made, uh, it's made notionally to be fair and to be constitutional. And parliament has said the accused or the named person is given a right to participate. In order for that participation to be meaningful, um, you have to be, you know, as you know, know the case to me. Um, how, and that's, and if you don't know the case to me, and you can't, um, haven't been given what they, you know, Harkett says the uh, incompressible minimum of disclosure, um, you have a right to participate and you have a, a right to meet, not only meet the case, but, you know, not only just participate notionally, but actually like realistically, like uh, address these concerns and actually meet the case. Yeah, right. and actually meet the case and actually say, well, this is actually wrong. Um, so that's a tension, right, in the, in the act. And um, sort of the issue was it sort of without getting into too many of the details of this case, but that's the tension in this case, right? So 
that's why I, I think it's important that Parliament has put in there that you can participate in the administrative recourse and in the appeal. Um, but how does that work when you have um, uh, security intelligence, I mean, confidential security intelligence information, right? Is it at the, is it only at the appeal or if it's a federal court where there would be a third party appointed to make sure that any redactions that are done on security grounds are appropriate? Like when would a person even be able to have someone review if the disclosure itself is too broad or if it's being appropriately uh, withheld for national security reasons? Yeah, I, I would think that um, that third party, I mean, realistically would only come into play once you file an appeal. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there would be an obligation uh, or I don't, I don't, there's nothing in the act that says that, you know, you, you have to be given sort of amicus uh, to assist you in the administrative recourse process, right? Yeah. And just so to even, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just trying to like, cause I, for me, the, the the first question is to just understand the, the, the anatomy of this case, because um, it is unusual from my perspective in terms of like even the way that the decision is hived off into various, um, various components. So it's like there was the notice given and the opportunity to reply, though, only to the the unclassified information. And then that response was filed and then a determination was made by the minister's delegate. And then there was an application for a judicial review of that determination, am I right? No? It's not a judicial review, it's actually an appeal. An appeal, okay, and so there's a substantive right of appeal and that's like a, okay, it's like a hearing de novo on the merits of the decision. Uh, it, that, yes and no, uh, it's a statutory appeal. Okay. Um, and the statute, so the, the power, it, it's different than a judicial review um, in a number of different ways, but um, more the most kind of important aspect of the SATA appeal provision, it allows the minister, it allows the judge to consider evidence which was not before the original decision maker. So it's right. a, um, it's a pretty, um, uh, meaty like a substantive uh, appeal right but it is yeah. an appeal before the federal court right um okay and so because right. if you look at for example if you look at um just looking at the appeal provisions here right but um section 16 sub four, four five rather says um um a judge if the judge finds that a decision made under Section 15, that's the listing, is unreasonable, the judge may order the appellant's name be removed from the list. Right? So it gives a sort of a direct power for the federal court judge to say, no, it's unreasonable. I order it's removed from the list. So it's a little bit different than a traditional judicial review. We're talking about certiorari or mandamus, right? It's almost like a direct mandamus power, right? So um, and he, the procedure is, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it allows obviously confidentiality uh, and information to be not provided. It allows a decision to be not, it allows a decision to be made without giving full grounds to the um, person concerned. But then again, it 
also says that a person's got to be given um, a reasonable opportunity to participate, right? Um, so it's almost as if the case went into a period, and I know I'm not using the appropriate term, right. but like of some sort of discovery where there was efforts made by counsel to get access to more of the information that was utilized to make the determination against right. And that's where the amicus was appointed and there was like um, case management, like um, it looks like case management um, conferences were held in an effort to get more access to the confidential information. And that's where, why there were multiple right. decisions rendered about those various right. um, interim proceedings. And then indeed, in this case, the federal, the appeal, the statutory appeal uh, is based on something because of the nature of the act can be based on something that's quite different than what was before the original decision maker. Um, so, in that respect, it's it's quite different than a traditional judicial review. Yeah. Um, because it allows, you know, in terms of powers and in terms of information, um, more information yeah. comes out. And so, you know, um, it's no secret that we had a, you know, a, a, a public hearing uh, where uh, the um, uh, people, you know, the named, named persons testified court right and the judge has got to make a determination on that i mean obviously that that information wasn't before the original decision maker right so mm -hmm. um but I, I mean my point sort of my larger sort of point with the sata is um there are participatory rights in the act as a matter of sort of procedural even kind of common law administrative law um and in terms of the appeal process uh but it's only your right to participate is only so good as the information you get, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, um, Section 16, uh, sub 6 of the SATA um, requires the judge to, on the minister's request, to hear information in the absence of uh, the appellants. Um, the judge must ensure the confidentiality of that information. Um, Throughout the proceedings, the judge must ensure that the um, the appellants are provided with a reasonable opportunity to respond, but that he can withhold or, or the judge rather can withhold um, any information that, in the judge's opinion, is injurious to national security. Um, and then the judge may receive into evidence anything that, in the judge's opinion, is reliable and appropriate, even if it's inadmissible in a court of law. Wow. So these are written right into the statute. Wow. So in terms of like figuring out if these participatory rights are sort of illusion, an illusion, did the, like as part of the section one analysis under the charter, did the government introduce evidence that showed like in some cases that the appeal process worked and that someone was able to provide information which led the government to say, okay, uh, this person, it's not justified to keep this person on the list or our initial intelligence was wrong or something like that. Like as part of the sec, did they introduce any evidence that the appeal process has worked? The section one violation only concerns, my understanding can only concern the section six violation, right? There's no- well, First of all, let's describe what the charter right. allegations were, because I feel like we're jumping ahead a little bit. Right. It was right. initially both the section six and a section seven 
right. allegation. Am, am I right? right. But yeah. wasn't one of them, were they both pursued throughout the, the proceeding or was one of them not pursued uh, or they were- Well, we are, we are like in terms of my client, we argued it sort of a kind of different type of section seven violation. We argued in terms of Harkat, like we, don't, we haven't been given uh, the minimum level of disclosure. Okay. Uh, so we said it was section seven violation on that score. Right, okay. Um, and the judge said, uh, did not agree. Um, uh, Sadaf can talk about the section six violation because um, yeah. she sort of, you know, sort of led the charge on that. Yeah. So that, that was the, that was the, that was the section one violation. That was, um, or sorry, section one analysis, the, the violation that was subject to the section one violation, section six violation, sorry. Yes, we argue that um, the minister's decision and the data both violated section six okay. and it couldn't be justified. Um, and and um, the decision did find a section six breach both under section one, six one, which is mobility, the ability to, to enter and remain and move around in Canada and section six sub two sub B, which is economic rights to be able to engage in economic activities in any province. And it was a novel decision because um, it, was a, it was an issue of first impression. Nobody had previously argued that the, as the mode of transportation can, a, a, like an infringement on the mode of transportation can affect um, someone's mobility rights. Um, and it was found that that was, uh, that in this, world and especially given the size of Canada not being able to board a flight does infringe mobility rights and affects one's ability to conduct a national business which right. was the case. So we have a chart a challenge on the basis of mobility of infringement of mobility rights one based on section 7 like the life liberty um, and what I understand is that there was initially um, that it was framed, I can't remember whether it was the section six or the section seven argument was framed in terms of overbreadth, but that that was not pursued. That's maybe the bit that was not before. Am I right about that or? Um... I'm sorry, Eric, did you want to address that? Uh, the overbreadth was the? Um, well, we didn't pursue the, the overbreadth argument, right? And I, I um, when I was sort of, you know, um, I think that you know the, the issue with overbreadth sort of relates to um, what you know the objective is, right? Um, and versus the means chosen to pursue it, right? right? So that's so, like a section one argument, kind of. No, it's a, it's an overbreadth. So so okay. so the means chosen is to prevent um, people from traveling. Does this way of preventing people from traveling is that a um, reasonable way to achieve that objective, right? Or is that a necessary way to achieve that objective? Are the is the, is the objective disconnected from the means chosen, right? Okay. And you know, okay. we didn't, you know, I, you know, the problem, the, the issue is notice. You also have to give notice, right? So, and I, you know, I think you know, sort of broadly, I mean, not talking from a constitutional standpoint, right? Because that's always you know, trenches on legislative choice, and that's something that that. You know the, the constitution doesn't really address but from a sort of a policy perspective um um in terms of an, a citizen is 
you know, preventing their um, ability to travel, given the fact that there's other things that you can do, like canceling their passport, is um, preventing them from traveling a, a sort of a reasonable thing to do. If there are other means available, like right. stopping them from, um, I mean, I take your point. So maybe like, so, so I'm just sort of, that's sort of the issue, right? And I, I think at the end of the day, I think it really comes down to the circumstances and facts of every case, right? Is there evidence? I mean, that gets kind of back to this case and what the judge found in this case is, is there evidence that, um, what's the nature of the evidence? What's the type of threat? that the person poses based on the evidence and what can the minister do about can, what kind of directions can they uh, make to air carriers in light of that threat and evidence, keeping in mind that it's not like you're either on the list or not. Mm. Right. It's, it's just, I understand that like in a section one analysis, you're looking toward minimal impairment of that right. But also in terms of overbreadth, it's like, you know, as Steve said from the beginning, when you're looking at the fact that the way that it's drafted, it could speak to um, masks and, you know, um, impeding travel safety. Um, but, you know, that it's it's written in such broad strokes that the fact that everyone is like, well, no, this is speaking to a 9-11 situation. Well, that's not what actually appears in the wording of the act. So I was kind of, um, I was um, surprised to see that, um, that the overbreadth, because I mean, sometimes it's like when so much is left to dis- the discretion of the officer, that sort of, in my mind, what distinguishes an overbreadth argument from a section one analysis. But um, but I don't know. I mean, uh, um, I, I just, I think for me, and this is an issue that we've talked about repeatedly on the podcast, is just the idea of so much being left to the discretion of ministers' delegates. And as you right. said, um, both of you have said, like so much of this is left even to administration by airline officials. And right. when you're talking about, um, uh, you know, such huge consequences for someone and with so little notice to them in terms of what even is the nature of the material being relied upon, you would think that the legislation should be pretty specifically right. circumscribed. And, and, in, and in, you know, just legally speaking, in terms of the section, the relationship between a finding of overbreadth and section one, I mean, I, I my, my thinking is that it's always logically very difficult to mm-hmm save a section one analysis. I mean, not only because of it, the seriousness of a section seven violation when it comes to be justified under section one, but logically a law that's found to be overbroad, right? will never really realistically, I mean, you can maybe think of some extreme examples, but I can't practically or realistically think of a law that's found to be overbreadth because it goes too far and then would yet then survive the minimal impairment test under oaks like it, that's it basically repeats the violation mm. right yeah um, because that's the whole idea it's it's a disconnect between the purpose and the means chosen to to achieve that purpose there's no constitutional right to say parliament was wrong in its purpose you know if parliament said you know we want to prevent anyone ever from traveling you know for whatever reason, it had a, like a blatantly broad purpose. Then, if the means chosen are are similarly broad, then there's a there's a there's a symmetry between purpose and objective. But when Parliament says this is what we're after, 
And then when goes to then when goes to apply, it says it you know it catches too too many people than designed, right? That's the overbred overbred issue, right? So um, so in terms of section one, I, I think it's difficult to justify something that's been found to be on the basis of overbreath because we're talking about the same idea. There's other means that could have properly achieved this objective. And you look at Oaks, it's the exact same type of analysis. Mm -hmm. What's the purpose? Is there pressing a substantial objective? Okay, you know, good purpose, Parliament, but you know, you just went too far. You just got to tailor the legislation a little bit better, which is basically what the court is saying when they're finding overbreath in section seven, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in this case, it's like, it's sort of, you know, it goes to, um, I mean, I would think that if a person was put on the no-fly list because of a mask, um, I think they would have a pretty good argument to the to say this isn't actually the purpose of the legislation. If you go back and look at legislative purpose, looking at everything, the words in the act, but also white papers and all the parliamentary debates, and this is all about this trist, transport, actual transportation security. Going back to the notice, so one of the things that the judge he made or the, the judge made three comments on ways to improve SATA. And the second one was the minister's decision pursuant section to 15 of the SATA should give some explanation for the listing of an individual and specifically state whether paragraph 81A or 81B of SATA applies or both. So 81A is that they're going to commit a crime in the air. A1B is that they're going to fly somewhere to commit a crime. So, like, I mean, maybe I'm misreading the decision, but it, like the notice that's given seems to just say that, like, they can't fly. Like, it doesn't even say in the vaguest sense, even whether which of those sections applies. Well, I'll, I'll make it, it's practically speaking, it's not even just the notice, it's the whole administrative process doesn't require the minister like even if you're going through the recourse proceedings the administrative recourse there's no requirement on the minister to even tell you which branch of a b that you're under right so it's not just the original notice the whole thing you go through the whole process the minister doesn't have to tell you any anything about under what head you're under right so as a person like, a per, yeah, like a person could spend their whole time arguing that they're not going to try to, you know, commit a, like blow up the plane. And all the decision maker has to do is go, oh, that's not, they don't even have to tell the person that's not even our concern, but right. just keep them on the list. Uh, is that like. Right. Yeah. The, the notice that we received was, it said, and or. And or. I mean, you can sort of guess sometimes, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's a guess, right? Um, you can sort of see on the basis of the information that they're saying, right? Because they do give you conclusory sort of reasons why you're on the list, right? I mean, to the extent that you can, you can contest those reasonably or not, it's a different matter. But I mean, there's no obligation to tell you which head you're under, and that's the biggest problem. But you know, you can sort of guess to say, well, there's nothing in here about me blowing up a plane, right? But who knows what the ministers, what they're yeah. deciding to close doors, right? And like, so every 90 days, there's this, so just, there's this list of people who I, I would assume is slowly growing just as names get added to the list. Um, and I, I don't, so the list is slowly growing. 
the amount of pages that theoretically are being reviewed then is growing and is like x number of people i don't know how many people get assigned to this are supposed to just what like every 90 days determine if there's new evidence it's kind of like yeah. an immigration detention right yeah. every 30 days there's this real caution to for the irb members to avoid just being like well we've you know had to detain this long and it almost just becomes like pro forma okay continued attention like you don't get a serious review every 90 days i just i struggle with visualizing that like there are people actively reviewing this every 90 days seeing if there's any new information as opposed to just almost this rubber stamp of here's the list you know sign right. off on again like i, I mean just... the reality steve is we don't know yeah. right you know, we don't know. And then we also don't know how many people on the, are on the list. We don't know how many. That's how crazy many to me. That, like, people that get off, not even, even, from a, even from a public sort of public interest perspective. I mean, I don't know if you're a, you know, a journalist, if you can say how many people are on the no fly list in Canada, is the list growing or is it um, not growing? Is it, you know, getting smaller? Uh, how many people are getting you know, uh, booted off the list after a successful 90 day review. Uh, how many reviews does it take? Uh, what is the time? Do you ever get off the, yeah, the no yeah. fly list? Um, I don't know the answer to those questions, right? Um, I mean, say for, you know, because the individual people um, who are subject to these things only know about what they, what they don't know about the other people on the list, right? But even from a public sort of a, you know, a public, perspective right like what's going on with no fly lists in this country are, are we uh under what head like why you know what's the concern of the no fly are most of those people travelers who are gonna you know try to travel to syria are most the concerns about people that are um gonna blow up um the plane right or, or yeah. cause the plane to come down well right? i think I don't know if it was uh, Sadaf's or your case, but there was the person was initially allowed to fly domestically, and then it was changed without any reasons or apparently a signature or, if I read the decision correctly, it even being clear who made the decision that this right. person could no longer fly domestically. That's right. The the judge found um, well on the reasonableness. Uh, part of the decision, the judge did find that the minister's decision to enlist um, my client uh, for under Section 81A, which is a threat to, uh, to uh, transportation security, he found that there was no evidence to suggest that that was the case. And so that decision was, quote unquote, inevitably unreasonable. Um, but uh, in the process of figuring out how the minister's direction changed from not being able to fly, being allowed to fly domestically, and ultimately being denied boarding altogether, um, the judge did find that there was an administrative update uh, where my client was initially allowed to board a flight domestically, and then he tried to board another flight, and during that second boarding, the airline contacted a senior officer who determined that uh, he should not be allowed to board. And there was no signature, there was no evidence of change in circumstances. And this was all uh, ultimately admitted. Um, and so 
the, the judge directed the minister to take these findings into consideration at the next 90 day review. So, I mean, I have a hard time even understanding how to read the conclusion of this decision. <laughs> like I see all sorts of discussion and I can nerd out over these kinds of like the constitutional questions that um, that Eric and I were abandoning about. I see some recommendations for how the SATA scheme can be improved, but I don't really understand what the takeaway is of this case. Like um, perhaps I can just get both of your take on like what are the takeaways from this decision? <laughs> Go ahead, Sudan. No, I, I really. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I mean, it's hard to say what the what the takeaways are. I mean, I mean, obviously, it's the judge has made some recommendations about how the SATA can be improved. I'm not um, sure what force those hold. Like, is yeah. this is this dicta? Like, I don't really get it. It's like, and they seem to, yeah. Like, I mean, what is your sense of even the tone of these recommendations? They're kind of like to me. They seem sort of like, yes, we need to maintain confidentiality, but you know, right. there seems to be like a kind of salutary nod toward um, having some sense of why you were added to the list. But again, it sort of, it seems to me to have very little content in it. I just want to know, is that my just uninformed read or does that sort of resonate for those who are actually involved in the case? Um, I think that, I think it's very difficult to say what the takeaway is from this decision because so much of the process is shrouded in secrecy. That's right. Um, you know, the that's almost court, a takeaway in and of itself. Yeah, right. I think that's right. I mean, I think that's for me. I mean, I'm a lawyer and, you know, I don't get into the details of this case and the merits of the judge's decision, but, um, you know, there were the confidential aspect of these proceedings dwarfed what the public proceedings was. And I'm not saying that's, that's a function of the act, right? But that's sort of the problem with these types of decisions is, you know, it's very difficult to say what the takeaway is mm -hmm. of this, other than to say that the minister has established this process. It's allowed to be confidential. And, um, and that's the problem with these types of cases, right? They'll yeah, have, yeah. I mean, it's a growing trend. Too, right it's yeah, not yeah, just sure. in immigration law and, and, and sort of sort of administrative law but in criminal law you have yeah. these cases where uh weeks on end of closed in camera hearings right yeah um yeah. and uh it's a problem right and if there's a tension between your right to what they say like what you know justice mclaughlin says is right to know the case but an actual ability to meet the case yeah um right to fair trial right to public hearing right, right. to uh, all of this stuff uh rule of law uh, right you know and, it, and just for the pub and also for the like as I, I sort of said earlier to steve like in terms of the just outside of all that the public aspect of this like just to for the public to know okay we have a no fly list in canada you know how is that being used? Is it, mm -hmm. is it being abused? Is it are uh, are a certain are certain types of 
uh, groups, ethnic groups, uh, disproportionately on that list. Right. Um, Who was making these decisions? Why? Making these Based decisions. on what information? Right. Right. And for what reasons? Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think those are all you know legitimate questions that arise. Sure. I mean, not necessarily from this decision, but the scheme itself. Right. And um, you know and yeah, so I, th I think that's the sort of takeaway for me is that okay. um, it's it's very difficult to say, right? Yeah. And in terms of a, a person, you know, members of the public are sort of interested in security-based measures and um, and whether they uh, whether they disproportionately impact certain uh, groups in Canada. You know, it's a good good question, right? Yeah. What do you think, Sadaf? I have to agree with everything that uh, Eric has just said. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, particularly what resonates for me is what he said about how the non-public components of the case dwarf the, <laughs> the public components. And it's like, you know, I just, I have this image arising in my head of like, if you expect a piece of jurisprudence to shine a light on something, it's shining a light on a firmly closed door, you know? Yeah. And it's like, okay, and there it is, it's still closed. And everybody seems to be like hunky-dory with the fact that that's how it is. And that's how it's gonna stay in some sort of like nice, pretty little comments about how this is how we could do better. But, um, you know, this is just a statement of the nature of these proceedings being like, you know, behind closed doors and decided by super important people who are entitled to do this in that way, essentially. Right. And I, I don't know, I mean, you guys would know more about this, but uh, is there any, uh, has there been any further disclosure about the security, uh, the security certificate scheme? Like, um, you know, I, I deal, I've been dealing with the SATA case for a long time, but, you know, is there any type of public information concerning security certificates and detention and the type of people that are subject to security certificates and how many and all those types? I mean, we seem to have a debate about that time when Sharkawi was happening and we had the Arar inquiry and we had a whole bunch of public yeah. inquiries concerning this stuff, but I mean, has there been any further information concerning that? I stuff? mean, the closest comparable, I can't think of anything in the security context, also not an area that I uh, am an expert in by any means, but the closest comparator would just be like the Chabra decisions with habeas corpus, where, you know, for years, if not decades of the immigration division following its process on maintaining people in detention, essentially saying kind of a similar trust us, the process works. And eventually people going to superior courts where a separate jurisdiction that wasn't the federal court looked at how things were proceeding in the federal system and basically said, uh, this isn't working and it's not acceptable under our standards. Right. So I think well, we know. Like the whole notion of like, just trust us, you know, well, why? Well, we can't tell you why. That's part of what you have to trust is just, it's not a settling like argument. Right. And we know there's, a, there's been a series of, you know, sort of public inquiries about, um, you know, the security intelligence stuff and, and the scheme in Canada and the extent of the abuses that can arise from uh, information sharing. I mean, information that's given to Canada from foreign intelligence um agencies right and there's a whole bunch of concerns that arise from that so um 
you know, I think it's a, it's a important, I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer, right. And I like these opportunities so I can talk more uh, outside of the confines of the case and just sort of broadly, like from a legal and policy basis. Right. But there are important questions, right. That we've struggled with, right. And that, you know, we had some painful experience in this country with, you know, Mahara Rara and things like that. But, um, you know, to what extent does, uh, does these types of processes, uh, you know, alleviate those concerns or not, or does it perpetuate them, right? I just think in general, if we're talking about transparency and accountability in processes and in policies, I think we are moving away from those things as, a, as opposed to further further toward them. And, and this is a conversation that we've had repeatedly around the use of artificial intelligence, around the use of, um, you know, just access to the department, uh, you know, uh, you know, reasons, uh, the, the abundance of reasons once when a decision is made. And I think that um, when something comes into the area of security, this is why to me, the question of this, this is what I think is fascinating about the conversation about overbreadth versus section one is that really it shouldn't take um, a specific case to say, look, they now apply this to somebody who's wearing, who's wearing a mask. It should just be that if the legislation is drafted in these overly broad ways, it just creates a situation where it's, it's right for this type of, um, discretionary use, it just leaves too much to the invention of the individual delegate. And that's the part that I think is in my, in my mind, again, I mean, who am I to say, but like, there is supposed to be fundamentally a distinction between drawing a law that catches all of the leaves and then saying like, it's not really about the purpose. It's like, it's about if it's drawn in such a way that like all of those things could theoretically be caught, but now we're just relying on individuals to administer it in a much more- But isn't that, isn't that, but that that's so true. And, and isn't that the problem with a security-based purpose, mm. right? Because anytime you talk about, you know, the need to protect transportation security or the need to protect Canada's national security, those purposes themselves are so broad and, yeah. and so cherished in yeah. our community, in our society, in our legal community, in For our sure. sort of legal well, structure. That, that's so any like means, it. any means chosen is going to be proportionate to that. No, right? I sort of feel like, and this word, of course, has a totally right. different connotation in this era. But I feel like that is something that trumps everything else. You right. know, it's and like, it, it rem- trumps, like trumps, I'm a criminal you know? lawyer, right? So I, I see the same things with you know protecting children from violence and predation right that 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 objective is so important that it's any any sort of any means chosen that's going to achieve that objective in any way is going to be considered to be whether it's under section one or section seven proportionate or in harmony with the purpose and you know the objective and the purpose right and that's also the problem with security-based stuff is like well, the minister says you have reasonable grounds. The, the, the purpose is to protect Canadians. Yeah. Right. But I well, guess so, a- what, what worries me, though, is the attrition of this 
rule of law perspective? Because let's say, for example, when you're in front of the board and they're pursuing a misrepresentation allegation or an organized criminality allegation or something like that, and they say that the rule has purposefully been drawn very broadly because they don't want to make it too difficult for CBSA to secure, to, to make out the case. Okay, but at the same time, there is also the competing rights. Like, it's just, to me, it's a fundamental issue of the individual versus the collective right. And I feel like we're kind of heading in the wrong direction in terms of like, okay, but the state needs to, you know, protect these collective rights, but it's becoming at the expense of the individual being able to defend themselves. Like, get it understood you know that you need to be able to like not make it impossible for somebody to ever make a case and that's why reasonable grounds and all that sort of thing but at the same time when it happens at the expense of being able to know the case meet the case present a proper defense you know i i think this is where to me like what happened to the charter arguments like how come they're not mentioned are they in another decision or there's there's two there's two decisions okay okay yeah yeah, but they're sort of, but you know, they're sort of related, right? At the end okay. of the day, right? Because these are, you know, these are Section Seven rights, and um, and I agree though. I, I think that's a tension that we've been dealing with since nine eleven, and it seems yeah. to be a discussion about Agreed. these things. Agreed. And now, like, I don't know what's happening now. Like, you know, it's and you know, we're now looking at. I think the most important thing is it, now to look at what are the impact of these security. Uh, measures like who is subject to these these the, the passport restrictions yeah. and are they disproportionately used um, yeah. in certain like, communities and, and we don't I mean I, I don't know I, maybe it's just I haven't been hearing it but I just I haven't seen um, you know different communities get up and say hang on like this is not fair why no, are we being- I agree with you they don't but I mean, when the focus in the hearing room is on poor CBSA and the challenge of trying to present an organized criminality allegation versus poor citizens of Iran trying to present a case of systematic bias, you know, (laughs) how are you supposed to mobilize this information? And I mean, like, that's just one example. This is something we talked about on our last podcast. Like, how do you amass this evidence when it's first of all, blocked behind a wall of confidentiality. You know, you, uh, this is something we talked about. Um, was it, no, that um, regarding the Tefreshi case, um, Steve, you know, like how do you mobilize information to show that the department is treating an entire group of applicants in a distinct way? Like, how do you access that information when it's right. about, like you can't do an HIP search for how are all of the cases of self-employed applicants from Iran being dealt with differently from all other people that would well, normally be dealt with by the visa office in Iran. Like this is not information that an individual can normally access. And they're often like impecunious groups or, you know, disenfranchised groups. And so like, so again, this to me is sort of like, I just wonder whether or not the balance is tipping in the wrong direction. I mean, even in terms of the lack of information, like the examples that we gave at the start of how the act works, we kept using ISIS as the example, going off to fight ISIS. Yet these two reported decisions involve Sikh people. And I'm actually surprised, like, like, we don't have any data on it, but in the Sikh community, there aren't questions of, okay, like how many people are on this list because of some government concern that there may be an involvement or potential involvement with 
can't remember the name of the separatist movement in Punjab, but mm-hmm. I, it's, and if that conf, like that, like it's, it's broader even than I had initially thought the list might apply just right. by the fact that like, we aren't talking about people involved with ISIS. It's a mm-hmm. different separatist group. Right. And we don't know the nature of other people on the list. Right? Yeah. You yeah. can't, you can't disclose it. Right. Um, so I mean, these are all good questions, right? And like, if it's anything like the scheme in uh, the, you know, in the immigration scheme, where even if you're trying to escape the influence of a group, you're still caught under the <laughs> under the net, under the web. It's any affiliation, you know. So sometimes somebody who is um, you know, this happens a lot. You know, I was just thinking, um, for example, you know, we've talked about what happens a lot in Bangladesh. You know that you are part of the uh, the protests on the street and then you want to escape that. Uh, and then you, because you affiliated with a terrorist organization now, um, yeah. that is going to prevent you from making a refugee claim, for example. So Again, uh, these issues can never be got at because they're all blocked behind the wall of confidentiality. The other thing that we talked about and have talked about on the podcast, like in the criminal justice system, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. Even if the likely criminal sentence is going to be like a fine or a conditional sentence or house arrest. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, the standard is a reasonable belief to ban someone from flying. I know there's a 90 day review every 90 days, but until there's evidence to suggest otherwise, I strongly believe it's just a pro forma review that yeah. basically to like ban someone from flying possibly for the rest of their life is just a reasonable standard, no charge even necessary. Like, Yeah, especially when the 90 day review is always going to be on these same terms with no ability to really know the case. And, you know, it's not like people have unlimited means to challenge these um these determinations so i mean i imagine in, um, i find it so weird that every 90 days possibly for the rest of like someone's life that they would get this letter that says got anything you want like every 90 days got anything you want to say about the thing we can't tell you about like right i just find that so weird. yeah i mean i like i like to think that parliament has put that in there for a reason yeah. um and and you know what my view Always You're such an it. optimist. Wow. I am. Because <laughs> well, I, you know, I think you have to be able to go to the, the minister and say, no, no, no. You know, you do your review every 90 days and we'll be there. Right? Yeah. You know, I think that's what Parliament has said, right? So I think it's, you know, I, I agree that, you know, but I think you got to, Parliament said that. There's got to be a 90-day review. So let's do it. Right? And you got to do it. Yeah. You know, the stable of pro bono lawyers going to take on right. Uh, no, it's, but I mean, I think it's easy to say that. That's maybe that's how they treat how they're treated. I don't know, right? But um, they convene this this group of all the different heads or whatever it is of all the security, you know, or sort of different gov- you know governmental uh, departments like Minister of Transport, CSIS, um, RCMP, right? And they all sort of sign off on it, right? But they're the, you know, I've seen the reports. I mean, they're basically signatures, right? Yeah. They're like, at our latest meeting, right? Um, I don't know what those meetings they're look probably like. probably all use DocuSign now where they're just quickly clicking. Yeah. The- <laughs> right, I don't know, right? I mean, like, you know. Um, 
But that's sort of my sort of, I think that, you know, you got to, Parliament's done this act and they got to follow through with that, right? So, um, so. Well, this was super fascinating for me. Um, I wonder if uh, either of you have any final comments about uh, all of the dust we <laughs> drummed up into the room today. No, I, I have no other comments. I, I think, uh, you know, these are interesting issues. And I, I just think, you know, from a sort of a policy perspective, I think it's really interesting how this is how they've added the traveling aspect. I mean, it makes sense to me logically that you can um, ban someone, put someone on a list because you think you're going to blow up the plane. Right. But this like traveling thing and it makes me, we're talking about ISIS, right. But could be really applying to everyone, right. Who's going to go for a purpose of terrorist activity and, you know, the passport cancellation issues, broadly speaking, like, is it, is it something that we got that, you know, the society became concerned about after that New York times podcast called caliphate, right? Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. The Canadian fighter who went to ISIS, like, are we sort of like chasing that? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, that was all that, fake was in the, the end. Was that that was the one that was mm. fake in the end, wasn't it? it was that fake. Caliphate yeah. turned out to all be fake. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. are we sort of chasing this sort of like like this sort of stereotypical bad guy in doing all this stuff and getting all this law you know, to to enforce that, and then in reality, we're doing something completely different in terms of applying this. Thing. Or is it just Canada with its like? quintessential inferiority complex trying to show the world that we're not going to let in that it's not on us like right do this. it's a huge it problem about the training I mean, grounds in montreal you know right no exactly you hear these other countries about whether they're bringing their isis it's all like are they bringing their isis fighters back right like you know it's like so are we like are we legislating against that um have you followed so, the it's um Sadaf's firms actually, Erica, her firm, the Mason decision and immigration, where they've pigeonholed. So, I mean, you've done immigration. So, you know, like Section 34 of the Act under security says a permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds for e engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada, right? It's under the right. security section of the Act. And CBSA has started going after people. Um, not charged or acquitted for like domestic assault right uh, just broadening the provision and it kind of gets to what you were talking earlier about how we've got this broad security we want to you know ensure security and just the way things start getting pigeonholed in right it becomes like everything becomes just in service of that great yeah great broad objective right and then after the pandemic, science. It's like security and science are the two things that everything gets pigeonholed under. Right. Just add another one. Exactly. Yeah. So that, we'll, in the next 10 years, we'll have another one we can add to. It. Yeah. We just keep on adding things. We never things never go away, they only get added, right? Yeah. <laughs>